Well, turn in your copy of the Scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, and today we'll be looking at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. As you get there, let me ask if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy and perfect word and follow along silently as I read aloud from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is what the word of God says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again." All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Their eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the earliest translation of the Old Testament we have from the original Hebrew. If you use a Bible Uh, with some footnotes or some sort of a study Bible, you might notice sometimes throughout your uh, Bible in the footnotes or in the margin, it would have the letters LXX and then maybe a word. That's, That's the sign for, that's the abbreviation for the Septuagint, saying in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that was used or something like that. The English title of the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes where it was titled as such, Ecclesiastes. It actually means preacher, which is derived from the Greek word ekklesia, translated assembly or congregation in the New Testament. How fitting it is to dive into this book today as we're gathered together with the family of God, right, as the ekklesia on this particular Lord's Day. So pick it up in verse 1. It says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now right there, the author of the book is identified in no uncertain terms as Solomon, who was both the son of David and king in Jerusalem. You'll see throughout the book, no less than seven times, Solomon refers to himself as the preacher. So whenever you see that term throughout Ecclesiastes, it's Solomon poetically referring to himself in the third person. Now keep your finger and your, or your place in Ecclesiastes 1 and turn over uh, 11 chapters to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll go from the very first chapter to the very last chapter of the book. I just want to show you something beginning in verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verse 9. It says this, Besides being wise, the preacher 
also taught, there he's referring to himself again, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Yet again, another uh, identifier of Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes because he's alluding to the fact that he also wrote the book of Proverbs. Pick it up in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, Solomon had a heart for people, but specifically, Solomon had a heart for young people. Uh, we're, we're reading a work uh, most likely written towards the end of Solomon's life, similar to Proverbs, where he sought to address young people primarily, but not young people exclusively. Similar to when Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. It's written to him, but others who read it glean godly wisdom as well. Now, I want you to consider this question because you're going to be faced with this question as we go throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Is God's word enough? Now, it sounds like there's a right answer to that question, right? Like, we're in church, it's Sunday. Uh, Yes, it's got to be enough. I haven't said it's enough for what. You don't know what I'm really asking. But is God's word enough? Is God's word sufficient? Because the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is of primary importance and perhaps under more attack today than any other doctrine when it comes to the Word of God. I mean, the doctrine of the authority of Scripture answers the question, where does God's, what does God's Word have authority over? Like, where is its jurisdiction? Whatever God's Word speaks to, it has authority over. It is the end-all, be-all. The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture reminds us of the fact that although Scripture was written by human authors, the writers of Scripture wrote the very words of God as they were inspired to do so by God himself, the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. The Greek word there is theopneustos. Paul coins a compound word there of god Breathe. All Scripture should be seen as if it came out of the very mouth of God. Paul paints that word picture, letting us know these aren't just words. These are the words of God. They may have been written by people other than God, practically speaking, who wrote them down. But all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the inspiration of Scripture. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture has faced challenges throughout history. You look back to the 17th and 18th centuries during the Enlightenment era where there was skepticism of religious texts first really started to arise. Uh, You look at the modernist fundamentalist era of the 19th and 20th centuries. Modernists were influenced by lots of critical theories, not the least of which was the theory of evolution, which by definition is an assault upon the inerrancy of Scripture. The postmodern era where we find ourselves now, really the late 20th, early 21st century, emphasizes subjectivism and relativism and skepticism toward the the meta-narrative of Scripture as a whole. I mean, the clarion call of our day and age is, you do you, boo-boo. Your truth may not be my truth. And statements like, there is no absolute truth, which ironically is an absolute statement. And so when you look at the authority and the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, it's all very important. But Ecclesiastes is going to challenge you on your belief on the sufficiency of Scripture. Is God's Word enough? And so believing that the book is, uh, has authority over everything it speaks to is great. Uh, believing that it's been inspired by God, great. Believing that it's inerrant, it's great. But why would you look up how to do an oil change in a book like, you know, uh, How to Be a Parent? Like that book is authoritative and speaks well to parenting, but you want to do an oil change. Maybe you think this is just not, this book doesn't speak to that. Is that book sufficient for an oil change? No, wasn't intended to be. So here's my question. 
What about you? Do you have certain categories of things that you think, this isn't really a God thing. I wouldn't look to God's Word for hope. I wouldn't look to God's Word for help on this because it's just not in the book. I wouldn't look in a parenting book for how to do an oil change. Do you think God's work really speaks to all that pertains to life and godliness? Or do you think there's certain things that you can't really find in God's Word? Does God really speak to everything either directly uh, or in principle? Does, is God's Word really sufficient or is it, is it good for what it's good for? But it's an old text. It's outdated. It can't really speak to all of the problems that we face today. As we spend our time in this series and in this book, the overarching theme is summed up in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Take a look at it. This is what Solomon says. The end of the matter. In other words, like the bottom line, right? All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. And so, love and fear God and obey Him. Can that really get you through life? Or is it like, well, I mean, ish, right? There's things I have to deal with that the Bible's not going to help me with. Is that true? Ecclesiastes is going to challenge your opinion and your understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture because that's a pretty bold statement in Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Can you really find everything you need for life from God's Word. Is God's Word really sufficient? So go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and our text for today, and let's look at verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so in the span of one verse, we see the word vanity five times, which brings us to our first point. Your life is more like a breath than anything else. Your life is more like a breath than it is anything else. You see, the Hebrew word translated vanity there is the word havel. Uh, It's translated as breath or breeze. Solomon is saying your life is like a breath or a, uh, a puff of smoke or just like a vapor as we read in the New Testament in the book of James. In your outline, I put a couple of other examples from the Old Testament where we see this word used similarly. Psalm 39, verses 5, 6, and 11. Behold, you have made my days a few hands' breaths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere, what? Breath. That's that same Hebrew word, havel. Uh, Verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Again, surely all mankind is a mere breath. That's the same Hebrew word. Also in Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a, there it is again, breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Your life is more like a breath than anything else. Uh, There was a book that we had that my mom would read to us um, I don't know, throughout the day, but usually before we go to bed, she would read us a story. And we read a bunch of different books. We would go to the library and get a bunch of different books and read. I grew up on a lot of Curious George. A lot of, like before Jack Johnson, like a lot of Curious George. But then we also own this book called The Fall of Freddie the Leaf. The Fall of Freddie the Leaf. Has anybody heard of it? The Fall of Freddie for Leaf. Okay, well, 
It was a book that I grew up on, and it's somewhat morbid, but not really that morbid. It, it, it was a book by a guy by the name of Louis Biscaglia, Leo, excuse me, Leo Biscaglia. And it was about this leaf that was on this tree and apparently looked around and noticed that other leaves had fallen or looked down and noticed that there were leaves on the ground and was concerned and didn't understand why this would be. And so Freddie the leaf talks to his other friends the leaf and they talk to tell him that this is part of life, death is part of life, and we grow and we change and we become this color, then we change colors, but then eventually we die. And it's a book explaining in a very creative way uh, the fact that death is a part of life. It's an incredible word picture. Uh, I can still picture the book in my mind's eye and I can see it year after year. The brilliant changes in color remind me of both the beauty of God's creation and then when they're all dry and crinkly and I'm raking them up for weeks, for weeks, I'm reminded of a piece of wisdom we see later in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is what? A season. It's a great word picture. And yet, that's not the picture that God paints as an illustration for our lives. Not a leaf. He says our life is a breath. I can remember uh, me and my friends, we wouldn't really, when we went to the beach, we'd grow up going to the beach pretty often. We wouldn't build a ton of sand castles, but we'd always build like these walls or these forts or these fortresses or we'd dig a huge hole or something like that. And you'd do that for a little bit, but then guess what? Before long, what would happen? The tide would come in and completely wipe out what you did. Completely wipe out all the work, uh, the, the fortified wall that I thought for sure would stop the ocean from coming further onto the shore. Never did. And it was always wiped away, and then all of a sudden the beach looks exactly as it did when I got there. It's a great reminder to me that as hard as I work, as hard as something is built, it can also just fall. It's a, it's a great reminder. It's an easy word picture. That's not what God has us look at in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Not a leaf, not an ocean. Instead, we get... Havel, or Hevel, something I can't see and something I hardly ever think about is a breath. In fact, if I am thinking about it, it's because there's a problem. Nobody thinks about breath. Ever have anybody come up to you and be like, hey, I just got to let you know your breath is awesome. It's super fresh. I just love to breathe on me again. No, people either don't talk to you about your breath and talk to others about your breath, or if they're a real friend, they'll come up to you and be like, hey, you, I don't, you got to, here's a, Here's a curiously strong mint, right? Hand you an Altoid. We don't think about breathing. We don't think about breath. If we do, it's usually from a negative perspective. But you know what? The more time I spend in this passage this week, the more time I spend in Ecclesiastes as a whole, I'm convinced that not only is it a good illustration, but that there is likely no better illustration out there because I really believe what I said in my first point. Your life is more like a breath than anything else. And so in your outline, I've put five ways your life is like a breath. Five ways your life is like a breath. Way number one, your life is slippery. Your life is slippery. By slippery, I mean this. You can't get your, you can't get your hands on it. I can hold a leaf... I can cup my, my, my hands and hold seawater in my hands. But you can't take a, you can't take a breath and, and put it in your pocket. It, it is a real thing. It's a physical thing. It exists, and yet it dodges your fingers as soon as you attempt 
to hold it. In fact, an attempt to capture a breath in your hands, the very action of trying to hold it causes it to disappear faster. You create uh, more wind or more breeze that causes that breath to disappear even faster. Your life is slippery, hard to get a hold of. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 3 says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All the work, all the effort, all the energy put forth. What is gained? What is profited? Ecclesiastes is a reminder that life is slippery. It continues to elude our graphs. The more we try to control it, the more we're reminded that we're not in control. And if you've ever tried to gain more control of life, say, I'm really going to wrap my hands around it this time, the more you're reminded that you're out of control. I can't be the only person who switched into the faster lane to only watch it become the slower lane. Happens all the time. It, right, happens, it happens all the time. I can't be the only person who switched lanes at the grocery store because this one was faster, but then inevitably I get behind someone who still actually writes checks. To punch me in the face. Still actually writes checks at a cash register. This was faster, now it becomes slower. I can't be the only one who owns an umbrella but forgot that he moved it into the other car on a rainy day. I mean, you see this, the more you try to control life, the more you are reminded you are not in control. And those are funny things that we can laugh at and hopefully relate to. But seriously, we pour our time and effort and money into, and and, and everything, our energy into something, and yet we have no guarantee as to how it's going to turn out. None whatsoever. I mean, you might say that you have a secure job. How much control do you, you individually, really have over the security of your job? You might be relatively healthy. But how much control do you really have over your health? I mean, you can try to do things to keep yourself healthy as well you should. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Try to eat right, try to exercise. It's not bad. You do know that there are people who still do that, but find out that they have a terrible disease. How much control do you really have over your health? How much control do you have over the economy? How much control do you have over the stock market or interest rates or house prices or what you will be doing in in 10 years, in 5 years, in 1 year, in 1 week? Ecclesiastes is a reminder that life is slippery. It eludes our grasp. Psalm 103 and verse 15 in your outline says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. In verse 3, we're confronted with the reality of that question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's an implied answer. What's the implied answer? Nothing. Nothing. The word gain in verse 3 paints the picture of like profit or leftover. It's our desire as humans to be in the proverbial black instead of the red. Life is a breath. It exists. It's real, but it's really slippery too. It's, it's hard to control. 
Number two, not only is life slippery, but life is short. Your life is short. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 4 says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Your life is very real, but it's also very temporary, very transient. It is gone before you know it. Psalm 102 verse 3 says, For my days pass away like smoke. The picture painted is similar to the, to the blowing out of a candle. Picture blowing out of a candle on a birthday cake, something we've probably all done and all been around. And you blow out a candle, and as soon as you blow it out, there's a puff of smoke. And it's there, and it's real, and it's gone. And the older we get, uh, those who love us like to pile on the candles, right, and light this thing up so that there's heat emanating from the cake to remind us that we're this many days old or this many years old, and we blow it out, and it creates an even greater puff of smoke. And everybody sees it and laughs, and it is gone. Gone. Our life is like that puff of smoke. It is real. It exists but it is hard to grasp and it disappears before you know it. I was talking to someone who was lamenting the latter years of his life because he says it's like unrolling a, toilet, uh, unrolling a roll of toilet paper that starts out slowly but seems to just like really end really fast. Like it just seems to roll faster as the roll gets to the end. It was a Stunning commentary and illustration on what life is like, how in the beginning it seemed like, am I ever going to get into high school? Am I ever going to get out of college? Am I ever going to this? Am I ever going to that? And then all of a sudden you reach a certain age and you're like, where in the, oh, wow, where are we? Who am I? Where's my hair? What's going on? Sarah and I were on a, uh, a cruise for our 20th anniversary back in January, and there was at least one, one time, if not two, where we would, uh, we're like, hey, let's take a selfie here. It's really pretty. And we took a selfie, and we looked at it, and we're like, let's try again. We'll go from this angle. It's really pretty. And we're like, let's try one more, one more time. I think I blinked. Lie. I didn't blink. We're just like trying to read. And then we're realizing this is just, we're losing against gravity and time, all right? This is just life. It's not going to look better. It's, it's, this is the selfie. Just take the selfie, or just don't take the selfie. <laughs> Solomon knew what he was talking about in Proverbs thirty-one thirty when he said, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Again, Havel, like a breath, it disappears. If beauty was currency, you start out life rich and end poor. Your life is slippery. Your life is short. And here's another thing, number three. Your life is stuck on repeat. Stuck on repeat. I almost said your life is like a broken record, and then I realized precious few of the people who understand what I'm talking about who have experienced that. When the little needle got stuck at one point in the record and just kept repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. But your life is stuck on repeat. That's where Solomon goes next in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 5 and following. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 1, uh, verses 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. They flow there again. It's basically he's saying, do you ever notice the sun just chases its tail? 
Wind just chases its tail. Happens over and over again. There's not a time when the sun gets to where it's going and goes, now I'm here. I just chill here. It's just over and over again. There's not a time where the wind is blowing from one place to another and then stops because it reached its destination. There is no destination. Verse 7, saying all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, shows us that we're never truly full. And if we are full, we won't be full for long. We'll have to eat again. We'll have to have that experience again. Uh, The satisfaction that we have in life is so temporary and so short. It's just like we're stuck on repeat. If we had a good time on vacation, that's great, but it's not the last good time. No one ever goes on a vacation. It's like, I had such a good time. I don't need any more. That's it. I had that vacation two years ago and I'm, I'm good. No, quite the opposite. I'm sitting in the Miami airport having just gotten off the cruise. Do you know what I'm looking up? Cruises, because I can't wait to have that experience again. Never full. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Wherever streams flow, you know what? They continue to flow, and it never fills up. That's what our life is like. Slippery, short, stuck on repeat. And number four, closely related to what we said, your life is never satisfied. We'll never discover something new that will break the repetitive cycle so much that we're fully satisfied once and for all. I mean, all of us could name a time when we felt as if we had gained something, and we had. But we were dissatisfied before long, right? How long does the new car smell really last? And those air fresheners that smell like new car don't smell like any new car I've ever been in in my life. The car is only new until it's not. The job that's new and exciting is only new and exciting until it becomes old and boring. The marriage that's awesome is awesome until it's not. Friendship is great, and then you mix in a little drama and it's no longer great. That's what Solomon means when he looks at verse 8 and we say, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Your life is never satisfied, and if it is, it's for a very short time. And number five, your life is short-term. That's similar to short, but a little different. Uh, when we're talking about your life being short, I'm talking about the, end, uh, the actual time span of your life. Short-term is a reminder that our life has a term. Our life has a, you have a shelf life. Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 9, says, What has been is what will be, and what has been, is what will, has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, while there's a long road ahead for the recent graduate or the young father or the new employee, ultimately it will come and it will go. People don't gain or profit from their labors in this life long term because in the end, they die. And not only do they die, but they're forgotten. 
Uh, The young father, he will die. The recent graduate, the new employee, there will come a day before long that she will not be remembered. And if you don't believe me, consider this. Almost everybody knows, you, you should know your parents' names. If you don't, that's an issue. All right, so, so 99% of people, unless there's been a tragedy, know their parents' names. Most people know their grandparents' names. Some people know their great-grandparents' names, but not many. Why? Because people on the whole and in the main are really quickly forgotten. Our life is slippery, short, stuck, unsatisfied, and short-term. That's your life. That's my life. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Let's close in a word of prayer. Like, that's it. So, like, where do we go from here? Because this would be a great time for me to launch into application points on how life without Christ is all these things. And why living for Jesus is better than the things that we just discussed. This would be a great time for me to tell you about not investing your time and hope and money and resources and talents and treasure and all the things in this life, but to live for eternity. Everything, all, all of that is true. You should live for eternity. It's not in the text. This is not, Solomon's not saying, this is how lost people live life, but it's better if you follow the Lord. Solomon is following the Lord. He's talking about life. This would be a great time for me to talk about the the brevity of life and and maybe land the plane by asking, if you're a Christian, are you really living for Christ? Or are you just living like just about everyone else on your street? Uh, Just about everyone else who is pretty nice and kind, relatively healthy, doing their best to some degree? Are you going to end your life realizing that basically you live like everyone else? Didn't impact many for Christ. All of that is worth considering. All of that is true that you should think about if you're a Christian. It's very important stuff. It is not in the text. There's on the moral of the story is let's read Jesus on three. Like that's that's not what the, that's not in the text. Seems like it would be a great time for me to talk about the brevity of life for non-Christians. Ask them why they don't trust in Christ for salvation. Now, while they still have time and breath and life, that they haven't yet been condemned to hell, and it's a great time to remind unbelievers that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And John 14, 6 says uh, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And Acts 4, 12 says there's one name under heaven by which people can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. All of that's true. All of that brings out a hearty amen. Nothing I said is untrue. You should think about that if you're not a believer. It's not in the text. Like there's lots of, like Noah built the ark. That's true. Not in the text. Jesus walked on water. That's true. Not in the text. What do we gain from this? What what do we glean from this? Here's the thing. Ecclesiastes is a commentary on life. Do you know what Solomon is saying? It is what it is. It is it is what it is. If this were a newspaper, this would be towards the front. This is not the op-ed page. He's not giving opinion. He's not down. He's not up. He's like, hey, this is this is life. This is how we roll as humans. It's a commentary on life. The Christian and the non-Christian alike both live a life that is slippery, short, stuck on repeat, unsatisfying, and short term. 
The Christian and the non-Christian both have a life that's very similar to a breath. This is not Solomon saying, this is what the lost live like. Look, they're really unhappy even though they think they're happy. No, he's saying this is our life. This is life. Our life is like a breath. Verse 9 is true for everyone. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That's true for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. In fact, that's why those who come to Christ for a better life now usually don't make it long with the Lord. If you come to Christ for a better life now, you likely won't stick with it. Because Christianity doesn't make life better or easier now. When it comes to our quality of life present day, Christianity can be a net zero or even more costly. And if people signed up for easier life now, better life now, more fun life now, it doesn't take them long to ditch Christ altogether and say, I was better off before. I'm making enemies I don't even have because of Jesus. It is what it is. The brilliance, I think, of what our text today offers us is this. Everyone's life is a breath. The brilliance of the illustration is this. Everybody breathes. Everybody breathes. The young, the old, the female, the male, the citizen, the foreigner, the rich, the poor, the saints, the ain'ts. Everybody breathes. And here's the other thing. Everybody breathes, watch this, without thinking. Like you're doing a great job of it, right? I'm proud of each and every one of you. Breathing without thinking and doing a great... Nobody woke up today and said, you know what? Today I'm really going to... I'm going to nail it. I'm going to kill this whole oxygen, carbon dioxide exchange. I'm going to try to do it often and really do well. You do it without that. You do it in your sleep. Everybody breathes and everybody does it without thinking. And one day, everybody will stop doing it. Everybody breathes. Everybody does it subconsciously. And one day everybody will stop doing it. As boring as this illustration is, because it really, it's not pretty, it's not something you think about, not a leaf, not an ocean, not a mountain, not a team of horses, nothing, rem- nothing remotely remarkable. As boring as this illustration is, think of how important it really is. Breathing. Here we have this simple thing that we've been doing that's boring and automatic and thoughtless, and yet if we ceased to do it, we would cease to be. What about you and your life? Is your life just on autopilot? Thoughtless, you just do the thing. I do the thing. I wake up and I do my thing and I go to bed. Because one day it will cease to be. Where does that leave us? Life is a breath. And if you just ride it out, if you just let it go, Solomon reminds us, it'll go. It could be said of you, he breathed until he didn't. 
She started breathing, and then one day she stopped. Everybody's life could be summed up in that epitaph. But as boring as breathing is, and as boring as the illustration of a breath is, it's incredibly important that we know how to breathe. And if the illustration here is that our life is a breath, and breathing is that important, our lives are incredibly important, which brings us to our second point. Since you're going to die, you better learn how to live. Since you're going to die, you better learn how to live. That's the takeaway from the text we read. That's going to be the overarching takeaway from our time in Ecclesiastes. The reality of life and death will sink so deeply into our minds and our hearts that we care a lot about how we live. In fact, it can be unbelievably liberating to embrace the repetitive rhythm of life. Why? Because you live in reality and not in the land of make-believe, where you dream about what life would be or should be or could be or might be one day at the expense of realizing what life is right here and right now. See, Ecclesiastes is very down-to-earth. I don't know if you picked up on that yet. It's very down-to-earth. There's nothing new under the sun. What has, been, what has been always will be. To everything there is a season. Things change. Like, it's, it's very down-to-earth. There's no like, oh, but this, and make-believe that, and imagine this. And so embracing the repetitive rhythm of life helps us to live more in reality and live a life that actually means more for Christ. Because you won't make believe and waste your time by imagining, like, what would life be like if you got the promotion? How great would it be? You won't live in the land of make-believe by imagining your children were different than they are or love the Lord more than they do. You won't make-believe and, and, and imagine you had a different job. You won't live in the land of make-believe and imagine what it would be like if you could have that house that you love. You won't live in the land of make-believe and imagine you had a different relationship so, 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 so you'd never long for one again. You won't live in the land of make-believe and imagine you were married. You won't live in the land of make-believe and imagine you were single. You won't live in the land of make-believe and imagine you had more money or less diapers to change or always arrived on time or early. Christians who embrace the realities of this life Spend less time in the land of make-believe and more time living life to the fullest, making the best use of the time, knowing the days are evil and aren't foolish because they understand what the will of the Lord is. That's in your outline. It says Ephesians 4. It should say Ephesians 5. That's a typo on my, my fault. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. What's our takeaway? Our takeaway is this. Since you're going to die, you better learn how to live. And so what about you? When you consider the repetitive rhythm of your life, are you frustrated? Are you down? Or can you actually be encouraged by that fact? See, I think the enemy and your own sinful nature would want you to be frustrated with the truths laid out for us in the text today, such that you'd give up, just throw in the towel, become useless and fruitless for the kingdom of God. Some people do that. If you see your life as nothing more than just fruitless repetition, 
you'll miss out on the rhythm God has for you to walk with Him and others in fruitfulness. It's just, it's just repetitive. It's, this is just, why am I even doing this? This is just pointless. It's not exciting. But if you see your life as part of a God-designed rhythm, a God-designed rhythm for His glory and our good, you won't be brought down by the repetition. Like nobody finds a drummer who's really good at keeping time to be boring. We're really glad that he or she can keep time. It, it's what, it drives the song. Keep the time. Do a good job. In fact, sometimes they get a little exciting. They're like, I think I'll put in a fill. It's like, if you lose time, keep your fill. Keep time. If you see your life as part of God, a God-designed rhythm for His glory and our good, you won't be brought down by repetition. Instead, you'll embrace the opportunity to dedicate your life to learning how to walk in accordance with God and His Word, making the best of the time that God has given you, which is where Solomon is taking us, saying the bottom line is this, fear God, obey His commands. Similar to what we read in Galatians 5.25, where Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's, it's my hope and my prayer that as we spend this time in the book of Ecclesiastes, we wouldn't just see our lives as redundant, as repetitive, as pointless, but that we would hear the rhythm of the Spirit of God that we might keep in step with what He is calling us to do as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to Him, glorifying to Him, and best for us according to His holy word. Father in heaven, we are delighted that we can hear from You and Your word. Lord, would You help us to understand truth from Your word that we might be encouraged to obey You more fully, to understand You more clearly, and to live lives that would be fruitful, not in our own eyes, but most importantly, in your eyes, so that we might bring glory to you for the time that you have given us to live on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.